You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. It's from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, and as it shows there, it can be paid, found on page 1084 of the Pew Bible. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's saviour. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. This is the word of the Lord. Week four of our journey through Advent. Uh, We're a week ahead of the rest of the globe because we've got a special service coming up next week, which would be the typical fourth Sunday of Advent. So make sure next Sunday you come prepared with picnic rug and bean bags because we're going to I think what we'll do is just clear that that center section and people can come and spread out and it's going to be family friendly if you don't love the idea of getting down on the floor don't worry we'll have other seating uh, available so uh, next week's going to be a little different and um, something to look forward to Um, we're talking about love this morning and um I, uh, I want to share with you uh, a little confession. That my confession is that when I was studying at theological college, uh, which was a long time ago now, to like 20 years ago now, wow. Anyway, uh, when I was studying there, my main objective in being at college, because I didn't want to go into church ministry, I had no intention of working at a church in any form, um, never mind being ordained, what I was there for was to get smart, and particularly get smart in the kind of way that would um, enable me to show off, because that's ultimately my main objective in life. So what happened was when I I came to this uh, theological assessment that we had for my theology class, uh, my my teacher was our friend, uh, Dr. Peter Adam, 
and I particularly wanted to impress him. So uh, we had to write an essay just from a theological text. So I tried to find the one that would be the most impressive to him and my fellow peers. And so I took John Calvin's The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and, uh, which is a big, fat book uh, translated uh, into English. And um, the only problem was I had no idea what I was reading as I attempted to read it. I, it just about everything he talked about was stuff I had no concept of, and so I um, didn't really achieve my purpose of showing off how smart I was. What I wish I had have done, and this is very, I'm very serious about this, if I could go back 20 years, I would do this. I would have not chosen John Calvin's The Institutes of the Christian Religion. I would have chosen a profoundly theological text. One that I'm sure no other theological student has ever considered, has ever written an essay on. It's a text written by Anna Bartlett Warner in the 19th century. Anyone recognize that name? Anna Bartlett Warner. Great theologian. You might recognize some of the words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. That, like, God bless John Calvin and his Institutes of the Christian Religion, but that is one of the most profound theological texts that you will ever read. This is not a preacher's trick or something. Like that is one of the most profound sentences you'll ever read. I think probably because most of us, did most of us get taught this when we were younger? You sing it at Sunday school? Jesus loves me this Sunday, for the Bible tells me so. You, you could think about that verse for the rest of your life and never get to the bottom of it. It is so profound. The idea that Jesus loves me is one of the most profound ideas that's ever been communicated to anyone in the history of the world. It's the fourth great theme of Advent, the theme of love, and so like every other week in this series we're gonna look at how Jesus' first coming and his second coming shapes our experience of love in this in-between time that we live in. His first advent, his second advent, remember advent just means arrival or coming. Um, it just occurred to me this morning, by the way, there is a third advent, and that is the here and now presence of God, right? It's not as if Jesus came and then left, and then Jesus coming again, and in the middle where like, we have no interact, like God is with us now by his spirit, okay? So the, this, the, for, for the purposes of uh, clarity, we refer to two advents, but the truth is that we're not left to our own devices during this time. Anyhow, Jesus' first coming, Jesus' second coming, communicate to us that 
God loves us. I want to show you how. The first advent, Jesus' first coming, how does this communicate to us the reality of God's love? If you're listening to the reading there that Graham was reading for us, you would have heard it over and over again. Love was the fundamental motivator in God sending his son into the world. So, his son comes into the world, God made flesh, Christmas morning, and the primary motivation in that event happening was love. 1 John 4, 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. John, Jesus' best buddy, he has a lot to say about the love of God expressed in the gift of Jesus. How do I know that God loves me? John says God's love was revealed among us. All right? It's not something that you have to speculate about. It's not something that you have to look inward to discover. God's love has been revealed. We know a lot about Revelation from this year. The apocalypse of God's love was this. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Live now and forever. You might have heard uh, carols as you've madly gone around ticking items off your shopping list. You might have heard carols that tell you that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I sure hope it is. But for many people, Christmas is the loneliest time of the year. For a lot of people, Christmas is the loneliest time time of the year. I heard it from someone's lips just this week. For them, the experience of Christmas is observing everyone else, spending time with friends and family while they while they move through this season alone. And it heightens their experience of loneliness seeing everyone else gathering together. When you're frequently asked, what are you doing for Christmas? And the answer is nothing. It heightens the experience of pain, loneliness. So if that's you this season, how do you know, in spite of your experience in this life, how do you know that God loves you? The answer is that Jesus humbled himself, became nothing, was rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, right? He became the kind of person who experiences the kind of things that you're experiencing for you. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. He says that Jesus 
Well, here it is. Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. One of the greatest truths that you can try, attempt to get your head around when it comes to Advent number one is God became flesh. It's one thing for a, um, a person of high standing and class to humble themselves. That, that is quite a thing for us to experience. If you see King Charles serving soup at a soup kitchen on Christmas Eve, that's, that's it's quite a resting. But for the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, creator of all things, for him to humble himself, to be born of a woman, with all of that entails, everything that is gross about being a human being, everything that is undignified, everything that's kind of pathetic about being flesh and blood, about being born utterly helpless, Jesus embraced all of that, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He emptied himself. So the good news for the lonely, the rejected, the depressed, the anxious at Christmas is that Jesus, for your sake, experienced all of those things because he loves you. all motivated by love. John just loves talking about this. He says it in his gospel. I don't know if you've heard this passage before, but it makes the same point. John chapter 3, verse 16. God loved the world in this way. That's what it means when he says God so loved the world. He's not like a a teenage girl, like God so loved the world. He's not, he, it's, not a, it's not a superlative. He's saying, in this way. So God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. If you want to know how has God loved the world, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. That's why we're here this morning. Christians need to hear the gospel like people need to breathe and eat and drink. We need to hear this and to be re-energized. Christians go to sleep. We go to sleep too easily. We can't, we, we're like the, um, oh, here's a nerdy reference. We're like the ants in The Lord of the Rings. We've become tree-ish. And we need something to come and wake us up, to rouse us. John three sixteen to 17 should rouse us. 
This idea that God expresses his love for us in action, in sending his son for us. This is the message of Christmas. God gave God. Speaking of teenage girls, man, my, my daughter, who will be a teenager next month, this is, she, she would hate what I'm about to say. She would say, Dad, that is so cringe. But here's, I can't help it. Here's, I'm over 40 now, so I've got a free pass. The, this is the truth, right? And it is cringe. But the first Christmas gift that was given was not, was not gold or frankincense or myrrh. The first Christmas gift given was God. God gave himself. God gave himself. God gave himself. God subjected himself to the indignity of birth. I've been to a couple of those. There's nothing dignified about it for the woman or for the baby. Subjected himself to the indignity of being born into human flesh so that he might live the life that we could never live, die the death we should have died. John 3, 16 and 17. The first advent tells us in no uncertain terms with scintillating clarity that God loves us. What about the second advent? Jesus is coming. Talked a lot about that this year. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming again. Come on Thursday night. Immerse yourself in the kind of um, my thought space, mind space. That, um, that we pray will sh- shape and reshape your whole perspective on the world. Jesus is coming. Living in light of eternity is what the greatest Christians have always done. Living in light of eternity. If you're a Christian here this morning, you believe things about the universe that should dramatically change the way that you live your life. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and you, if you're honest, um, care about all the same things that everyone else cares about to the same degree that they care about them, and think about life and your purpose in life in the same way as the people around you do, people who wouldn't call themselves Christians, then we have a problem. We have a huge problem because the things that you believe, and I believe that you believe them, right? The things that you believe should utterly transform the way that you see your life, the way that you prioritize the things that you want to achieve, the way that you parent your children, the way that you eat your food, the way that you dress, the way that you drive. Like this is an all of life, all about Jesus kind of faith that we have. It's just, it's just not something that you can stick on. 
So, how did I get onto this? The second coming of Jesus should shape dramatically the way that we live each day. Jesus is coming. Now, Jesus' second coming is, just as much as his first coming, motivated by God's love. God, because he loves the world, must judge the world. God, because he loves the world, must judge the world. Because he loves the world, he cannot bear to see sin reign unchecked, unjudged. Cannot bear to see unjust, injustice go unpunished. Because he loves the world, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Even the timing of his second coming is motivated by love. This passage has kind of come be, become emblematic. We haven't meant it to be, but kind of become emblematic of our whole Advent season. You see it printed over here at the prayer tree where you can write down people's names who'd like uh, to see God save this Advent season. But there's this passage in 1 Peter, or is it 2 Peter? Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. Hey, um, Suzanne, can you just um, open up the middle office, you know, with the couches and um, might be more comfortable. All right, so that passage tells us that not only is God's second coming motivated by his love, but his delay. He has been delayed. If you ask the first Christians, when is Jesus coming? They would say, lunch? They, and this, inc- this goes for the Apostle Paul. This, like everyone, they knew that Jesus told them, no one knows, right? So they weren't foolish in saying, oh, it's going to be this Friday, but... They definitely expected any second now, any day now. So 2,000 years has gone by, and Peter, with real kind of prophetic insight, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, remember this, Jesus' delay is motivated by his love. He's patient. What drives patience? Love. His desire is that no one should perish, that all should come to repentance. He doesn't delight in judging, though judgment is required by his love. And so he desires to delay so that all and as many as possible will come to repentance. Repentance just means acknowledging, I have been my own God in this life. I have worshipped myself. The kinds of things that will be judged by Jesus are the kinds of things that are highly recommended by much of the self-help world. Much of the books that you read, much of the 
therapy that you receive. I'm not against therapy. I've been seeing a psychologist for years, and I love it. But you need to be careful who you listen to because a lot of what is, a lot of the advice that is given is anti-repentance. It is serve yourself, take care of your own needs, in effect, worship yourself. Look within, live your truth, follow your heart. You do you. All of this is the opposite of that which leads to repentance. Repentance is an acknowledgement that I'm actually not perfect. I'm actually not good just the way I am. But that God loves me in spite of my flaws and failings, my brokenness, my sin, and lovingly calls me, woos me, invites me to repent and believe the gospel. Yeah. Even the delay of the second coming is motivated by love, and then the event of the second coming is just like a love story. In fact, that's exactly how John, again, it's John. He's so good, you know, in his three letters, in his gospel, in his apocalypse. He just gets it, all right? This is his vision of the second advent, and it's a love story. It's a marriage. It's a marriage between heaven and earth, a marriage between God and his people. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. It's a love story with a happy ending. God's first coming and second coming are just saturated. They're just um, dripping with love from start to finish. It's all about love. So now, in my last few minutes, 10 minutes maybe, I want to talk about how we can cultivate the experience of love, how we can weave love into our daily lives so that that semi-accusation I made before about believing the gospel and not living in any way different to those who don't, my objective in talking about cultivating love is that that wouldn't be the case for us, that we would in fact live upside down lives, that we would in fact live lives like Jesus, which are weird. They're weird. The way I say it to my kids is like, the whole world, the whole culture all around you, your school, every, everything around us, it's just, the, it's just jellyfish. Right? Jellyfish just drift with the current. Whatever, whichever way the wind is blowing, 
the, the cultural currents that we find ourselves in, jellyfish, they just kind of bob along with it. And what you need to be as a Christian is a dolphin. You need to be a dolphin. You need to be wild. You need to be countercultural. You need to swim against the prevailing tides. You need to leap clear out of the water from time to time. If you live like Jesus, you'll be much more dolphin than jellyfish. So, here's, here's some ideas. I've got three things. Three ways of cultivating love. Number one, whenever your head is on a pillow, pause to meditate on and thank God for his un- unconditional love for you. Again, John, what a guy. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and we are, he says. So that one sentence is enough to keep you meditating for uh, 2024. You can add to it. I like Psalm 23 when my head's on the pillow. I like the Lord's Prayer when my head's on the pillow. I like some of the liturgies of the Book and Common Prayer when my head's on the pillow. But my point is this. Whenever your head's on a pillow, is just another way of saying when you wake up in the morning and before you go to sleep at night. Um, this is a prescription. I've, you know what I've got at my house? A box, like a, like a shoebox of prescriptions that I've never filled. Because I just take it from the doctor and say, yeah, I might do that, and then put it away. And, and, and the same, same is true with this, all right? I'm giving you three prescriptions. You can completely ignore them. It's fine. Uh, but I do think if you fill these scripts and commit to doing them, it's going to bless you. I'll also say this. Uh, if I don't fill the script and then I go back to the doctor and say, I'm not getting any better, and he asks me, did you fill the script? And I say, no, I couldn't really be bothered. Then he would be in his rights to say, what do you expect, you moron? And my doctor probably would say that. That's why I love him. Flick back to that number one. Here's the the thing. If you do this, you will grow in your experience, not just abstraction, not just theoretical, but experiential knowledge of God's love for you. Just jumped into my mind. What um, What does Paul say in Ephesians 3? Oh, this is good. This is good. All right. Here's what the greatest missionary of all time is praying for you. I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able, listen to this, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height 
and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So here's one prescription for that prayer to be answered. Whenever your head is on a pillow, at that point, uh, your flesh and Yeah, I'm going to say demons. Your flesh and demons um, are, are, are going to jump right on top of you and, and you're going to find yourself, if you're not intentional about this, you're going to find yourself just going, oh, I better just check this. I, might have, might be, I think there's, there, I, heard a, I heard an alert before. Someone might have... Someone might have... Someone might have... Um, Someone might have sent me a message. Someone might have um, liked something of mine. Some, like, and like an addict, which is what we all are, you will satisfy yourself for a minute. You will satisfy yourself with cheap nourishment. Fast food, thumbs up, hearts. Whenever your head is on a pillow you will be tempted by Satan and by your flesh and by the billions of dollars that have been invested in getting you to be addicted to your phone, you will be tempted to go to that for uh, an experience of love. I know that I'm loved because I've got 14 likes. Okay? So, uh, that's going to take some overcoming I'm hoping everyone's looking down at the floor right now because they feel conviction and not because you're falling asleep. What you need to do before you do it, you can get to that, it's fine, do, like scroll away, but before you do that, just close your eyes. You can't look at your phone if you close your eyes. It turns out you have a whole kind of uh, computer system inside of your head. You don't need external devices. You can scroll through Passages of scripture, promises of God, lines of liturgy, you can scroll through in your own brain. One day they're going to get that thing inside of your head and then we're all in trouble. But for now you can have it external and you can ignore it and you can just spend time in here. Every single person in this church, irrespective of how long you've been a Christian, can spend five to ten minutes just at peace, meditating on, remember, ruminating, chewing on God's love. If you come and talk to me next year and say, I don't know, I just feel so far from God... And I say to you, did you fill the prescription? And you say, oh, no, I couldn't really be bothered. Then the meeting will be finished. <laughs> and you'll be sent away with the same prescription. All right. Oh, I used all my time. All right, number two. Here we go. Number two, cultivating love. Be the most demonstrably loving person at Christmas gatherings. Ask God for the mind of Christ so you can interact like him. 
Remember, we did this series, I loved it, from Mark's Gospel, no, from Luke's Gospel, called Meals with Jesus. Because in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either, in every, just about every chapter, Jesus is either going to a meal, or at a meal, or coming from a meal. And so Luke makes a big deal about Jesus' table ministry. So, Jesus, Luke 15, 1-2, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, here's a challenge, man. Because I tell you what, I get to Christmas afternoon or Boxing Day and I completely self-indulge, like indulge myself because I've had a big... You know, I've had a big busy time with lots of services, and so I get to that afternoon, I'm like, all right, it's me time, and I don't have to engage with anyone, and my family that I don't see too often is just going to get the worst of me, and it's a sin. Because I ought to be living like Christ, and Christ was amazing at his table, at his gatherings, at his festivals and feasts. All of the worst people wanted to be around him. And so, you know, we can say, be the most demonstrably loving person at Christmas gatherings. And you might say, you don't know my family. They're the worst. And you're probably right. Which just puts you in the perfect position to to have the mind of Christ. Because he was always around the worst people. He loved to eat with the worst people. And he was demonstrably loving towards them. So I'm just asking, like, that you pray for a miracle. That God would give you, would fill you with his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, so that you can interact like him. All right, number three, last one. All right, yeah, this is great. This is, so, this is exciting. This is, uh, yeah, this is energizing. Ready? Prepare each day to do something good for others. Look for opportunities to demonstrate God's love. He will schedule the appointments for you. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So here's what I know. I know that 450 times a week someone asks me, how's things? How's your week been? What have you been up to? And my response is always, same old, same old. Same old, same old. Boring. Life is boring. Unless you open your mind to the reality, which is your calendar is full of appointments that you don't know about. You know, God's got a shared calendar with you, and he's just scheduling appointments. He has prepared good works for you to do, for you, literally for you to walk in. So each day, and this is the exciting part about it, you've got no idea when it's going to happen, but each day, God has scheduled these appointments. I don't know how many, maybe just one today, it might be five, I don't know. There's, there's just like this constant 
possibility that you're going to walk into an appointment. I love this. I think that if all of the Christians had this perspective on life, then the name of Christians, the the, um, reputation of Christians in our community would be glowing. Because all of the people would still get together and say, oh, Christians, they're so annoying and they believe weird things and they're whatever, but they would have to say, but they really do a lot of good things. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men, before others, that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So even if they still hated the church, they might say, we, we hate the church, but their God is pretty great. I don't feel like I'm connecting with you guys on this one. I put this together this week and I was like, this is the best thought I've had for a long time. Are you energized by the idea that any minute God might send an appointment your way where you can demonstrate his love for you and for that person in some kind of action? Some of my biggest regrets in life, and I can think of three clear ones, they all happen to be on my walk from here to church on a Sunday morning. I remember them because of the hypocrisy. I was, I'm an important person in this organization, and I need to be here early enough to be well prepared to speak to these people who are depending on me. And so th- on three occasions, I have bypassed an opportunity to love someone, help someone, encourage someone. And those regrets are like thorns in my flesh, and God's not going to remove them because he wants me to know. He doesn't want me to miss the next appointment. Prepare each day. It's going to take some preparation because you're a selfish, self-centered sinner. So you've got that little slidey thing like you have on your phone, and it keeps going back to default, which is take care of yourself. Look out for number one. You're tired. Don't go out of your way for this person. They're, you know, you've worked hard for, their mo- for your money. They're probably just dull bludging. Like all of, these, all of these excuses we give ourselves come from self-centeredness. Bottom line. If you ever think to yourself, I shouldn't give something to help this person because they're probably lazy or undeserving, they might just waste it, then just think to yourself, were you deserving of God's grace when he saved you? Like, how much did you deserve his eternal love? You didn't. Not even a little bit. So I say open the floodgates. I say be prodigious. Be um, reckless in your love of others. Prepare each day. So you've had your head on the pillow in the morning. You've uh, meditated on God's love for you. So all of a sudden, you're not so insecure. You're not so fearful. Uh, You're not so self-absorbed. And now your head's in the right place to prepare your mind, your heart, your body to do good things, just to go about the day doing good things.
and, and bringing glory to your Father. They've been appointed, they've been prepared. It's time for us to walk in them. Prepare each day to do something good for others. Look for opportunities to demonstrate God's love. He will, I should say, he has scheduled the appointments for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great love for us, demonstrated in the first and the second coming of Jesus. And I pray that that love would shape the way that we live and love each day. Save us from boring schedules. Save us from boring doom-scrolling. Save us from boring Christmas gatherings. Release us, mobilize us, energize us so that we can live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We sing this next song. I'd, I'd really love you to focus on those two truths that Jono started his sermon with. Um, Jesus loves me, this I know. We are weak and he is strong. Your love. 
Your love is strong. 